Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. My guest today is Bob Kabelski. Bob is a chemist who has made a career working for Johnson & Johnson, Hewlett Packard, and most recently the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He is currently the owner and principal scientist at Resolution Sciences, a training and consulting company in Alpharetta, Georgia, specializing in chromatography and mass spectrometry. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. So we'll start out just to give a little context. Could you um, talk a little bit about your career and the kinds of things you specialized in so that people know what kind of scientist I'm talking to today? I'd be happy to. I have a master's degree in organic chemistry and a PhD in analytical chemistry. I came to analytical chemistry and instrumentation from the the qualitative analysis side of the business, which is a little unusual. And while I enjoy solving qualitative problems, most of my career has been spent doing quantitative work. Uh, as you noted, I, I worked for some large companies. I also worked for some small labs, less than 50 people. Uh, and over the time, I've worked on projects with an analysis of materials of 99.5% purity, all the way down to trace analyses in the parts per billion range in nasty biological matrices. Most recently... Before retiring, I was responsible for coordinating the activities of the chemical component of the Laboratory Response Network, which is an organization of 54 public health clinical chemistry labs across the country with the ability and the responsibility to respond to terrorist attacks or other mass casualty chemical exposure incidents. As you noted, I retired at the end of October, and after some time off, I've been working at launching Resolution Sciences, uh, companies dedicated to technical training in chromatography and mass spectrometry, and consulting in both generic application of those technologies and specifically in the area of clinical analysis. While I was working for HP's Analytical Products Group, it gave me a wonderful opportunity to develop relationships with scientists and engineers in R&D where I learned to appreciate the complexity and the level of detail required in instrument development and actually have developed a bit of a passion for instrumentation hardware. And recently, the Laboratory Response Network provided me with an opportunity to test things on a larger scale When we started the program after 9-11, some of the labs already had instrumentation in place, and we found that methods that worked well in our hands on our instruments did not necessarily work as well on their instruments. And when it came around to making purchasing decisions for 50 instruments or 60 instruments at a cost of $400,000 each, you better make a good decision, otherwise people get a bit agitated. (laughs) I'll bet. 
So this conversation that we're having came about as a result of a post I made in the um, Analytical Instrument Professionals group on LinkedIn. And you and some other people chimed in on that post. And uh, we had a nice debate. And I thought it might be helpful actually to finish that off and have a conversation about it because it seemed like there was a lot for marketing communications professionals to be learned from people like yourself and the other people in this conversation. Um, and I will link to that uh, post in the show notes. But there was one comment um, from Scott Abbott, and he kind of gave the idea that first just talking about choosing the right instrument for some processes would be valuable. I think a lot of marketing communications people um, have a narrow view of what – how they're going to market their instruments and how they're going to talk about them. And we never really even talk about what, how do you choose the right instrument for the job. So can you talk a little bit about that process? Sure. I think this is really the first question to ask before considering the acquisition of an instrument. There are often many ways to solve a problem. There has to be an analysis of many variables before a decision is made. The first question for me is what analysis techniques provide the required sensitivity, accuracy, and precision? Then something that I don't think is often considered is an evaluation of of your current resources. If you're going to add new technology, it's really exciting to buy a new instrument and a new technology but the lag time before it becomes productive is greater than employing a technology that you're already familiar with and have experience with. You might choose a somewhat less effective technology if it gets you the answer in a more timely manner. Uh, Cost is always a factor. Those parts are relatively easy to assess. The more difficult part involves looking into the future. At one of the small companies I worked for, I looked at the application area in the Analytes and worked to introduce LCMSMS to replace GCMS because the new technology reduced the amount of sample preparation, labor-intensive sample preparation, and provided more analyses per hour. That time, my crystal ball gave the right answer. And after the lag time to establish the technology, uh, LCMS MS flourished and the GCMS systems all but disappeared. Great. So um, picking the right instrument is, is something that needs to be done. So how, tell me a little bit about that buying process. What are the steps you take? once you decided on the right type of instrument, from there, screening vendors and evaluating products and so on? Just be aware that this is uh, very different from organization to organization. And I'll I'll try and lay out a a generic approach and then uh, perhaps get a little bit more specific. Okay. So, uh, generically, the first thing is that a need is perceived. And hopefully, this need is 
perceived as a joint venture between a customer and the analytical staff. So someone comes in with a problem and asks the analytical staff how this problem can be addressed. Then the analytical staff will sit down and look at the potential ways of addressing the need on on paper, you know, going through different potential technologies. After getting a decent list, then we get to that step where you consider what the existing tools and talents are, whether you can do it with current instrumentation, or whether you have to uh, step outside the box and buy something new. If you decide you have to buy something new, then uh, you have to get some sort of information about the cost, and I, I, because of the government mindset, I think in terms of budgetary estimates rather than quotes, from all the potential vendors, and then figure that the actual cost is probably going to be higher than those budgetary estimates and multiply the numbers that you've got by, I don't know, 1.2, 1.5, just so that when you move forward, you don't wind up in a situation where you're 10 bucks short of being able to accomplish what you need to accomplish and then having to beg for that money. <laughs> If it's a new instrument, then you have to check into uh, the requirements for site preparation. And this could involve getting engineering or facility staff involved, which adds to the timeline in moving forward. But again, there's nothing worse than having an instrument sitting in the middle of your laboratory with no way to hook it up. And the next step that's kind of generic is to convince leadership that the perceived need is real, the perceived need justifies the expense, and that you have a solution to meet that perceived need. And if you're successful there, then things start to get serious. Uh, Specifications are compared. At this stage, using industry standard measurements like uh, octafluoronaphthalene for mass spectrometer sensitivity is absolutely fine. I mean, you you just want to have a comparison using the same benchmark for multiple companies. Science and technology need to be compared. Again, from the network perspective, if you're going to spend $20 million dollars on old technology that's obsoleted the next year, you've made a bad decision. Right. Typically, uh, reduce uh, the number of potential vendors to about three for a real-world evaluation. The first step for real-world evaluation would be to provide the vendors with real-world samples that are prepared and generic methods for the analysis of those samples when they exist. The samples should contain calibration materials, quality control materials with stated concentrations, and unknown samples with unknown concentrations. All samples would be in the relevant clinical matrix or the relevant matrix um, because this is a real-world test. 
you want to be sure that the instruments that you're evaluating can operate with real samples. And this is really a critical stage. If the vendor doesn't take this test seriously, and it surprised me that many have not, uh, then they're eliminated because if they're not willing to make an effort to make a sale, how much effort are they going to make afterwards? Right. Then the vendors pass the information back, and you sit down and evaluate the results. And if as long as no one falls out, then it's time to schedule site visits for real-world testing. And this testing includes evaluation of the software as well as the day-to-day performance of the instrument, again, using real-world samples. The difference between this and the previous test is that if the instrument vendor took things seriously, they might spend a week or two setting up and optimizing their instrument to get the best possible data for your sample. But nobody has a week or two to spend optimizing their instruments. It's a matter of if we come in and put the samples in the auto sampler, how long does it take to get up, to get tuned, to get calibrated, and to produce good data? So can we go back? Uh, I just want to go back to one, a couple of the things you said. And one is to point out uh, that there are many, many people involved in this process. So after you've chosen an instrument and uh, or uh, what type of solution you're looking for, then the engineering possibility. So um, what's it going to take to hook this thing up and so on? So that's another stakeholder. And then there's the leadership who have to sign off on um, whether this is something you're going to go forward with or not. And there are the budgetary considerations where if in a government lab, it sounds like if you come up $10 short, it might not happen, <laughs> right? Uh, absolutely. That, that's usually in the smaller organizations. Okay. Where, um, and, and this would be the next step in the process, would be actually trying to get together the purchase. And that that will vary dramatically from small organization to large organization to government organization. Okay. Because of the extent that the scientist will be involved in the process. Well, I was just going to ask about, um, you know, one, thank you for that detailed explanation of the buying process including you know a couple of demonstrations and tie it back to something that i'm trying to get people to think about is you know all the questions that will come up in that entire process and the importance of marketing communications to get out ahead of those and everything that you can answer ahead of time not just with respect to specifications or instrument performance but how will we do this for you? For example, what will you need to send us for us to give you a good demo? And, and vice versa, what will you require from us? But answering every uh, question about the selling process that you can ahead of time will ease the path for a customer, right? For sure. For sure. Yeah. Moving on to a little more marketing communications thing based on the LinkedIn exchange we had, where where do you see that marketing communications organizations fall short 
when they're trying to persuade people about their instrumentation or to let people know about them? Well, keep in mind, as I said, I'm really a, a hardware aficionado. So from my perspective, I find most marketing communication to be very pretty, but it's fluff. There are nice photos. They have attractive people with instruments in a nice, clean laboratory. Uh, There's a graphic or two. But being an analytical scientist, I want to see relevant data. And as a lab leader, I would also like to see an estimate of the cost, both purchase price and, and cost of ownership. For me, relevant data includes all the typical parameters for that type of instrumentation. As I said, like sensitivity using industry standards. But I just I don't want to see just numbers, but I'd like to see actual instrument output so that I can determine if we're evaluating the, da- the data the same way. There have got to be five or six da- different ways of evaluating signal-to-noise ratio. And... While you figure that the uh, any instrument vendor is going to use the one that gives the best results for their instrument, that doesn't help you necessarily to compare between two different companies. So one example of relevant data for me was in a J&W scientific catalog many, many years ago after the introduction of a more stable version of uh, CarboX stationary phase. And it showed a chromatogram with a new column superimposed on one after 100 injections and superimposed on one after 1,000 injections. That gave me a belief that the technology, which of course was proprietary, uh, actually worked. And with, with my hardware exposure, I would rather see instrument schematics than a photo of people standing around the instrument. And if there's a novel technology that makes this instrument better than that instrument, I would like to see an explanation of that technology and help me understand the advantage. If I can understand the advantage, that'll win me over if the explanation is accurate. Okay. The worst thing that Marcom can do, and I say Marcom, I certainly include sales in this as well, is to make technical mistakes or make irrelevant claims. When that happens, it loses me not only for that purchase, but potentially for future purposes as well because the credibility has been challenged. Can you give an example of a irrelevant claim? Um, I was at a um, technical meeting and a vendor of uh, mass spectrometers was producing, uh, was, was delivering a presentation and they were talking about an MSMS transition, and I'm, I'm going to make up the numbers because I really don't recall. But it was like from 96.4 to 68.5. And there's nothing in the world 
that weighs 96.4, and there's nothing in the world that weighs 68.5. So I raised the question of how could you get that data? And the response was, well, unlike some other vendors, we use hyperbolic quadrupole rods. And yes, they do. Uh, but there are multiple other vendors who use hyperbolic quadrupole rods. So bringing that up was irrelevant to the discussion. And it really made me wonder if there wasn't some software problem that did not make it simple to do a good mass access calibration, which would always cause me concern about the quality of the data okay and the 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 gentleman from the fbi who was sitting in the audience uh chimed in and said yes he would be laughed out of court if he presented data with those numbers in it interesting so let's go back a little bit to uh something you said about i mean i really appreciate your um point about seeing more data and less fluff and I've had that feedback previously um, from scientists in one of my previous jobs where they, they said, why can't we just have these chromatograms? There's so much information to be gotten from those. Without all the stuff around them, um, just the raw data is helpful. And then, but you mentioned, well, schematics and other things, but it, I got the sense of looking for more transparency. So, of course, from the corporate side, people are worried about giving away too much information or having competitors take that information and use it against them in a paper specifications battle. So I'm guessing what I want to know from you is how do you look at that? And would you value that kind of transparency over the risk to the company that they are giving something away? And I don't mean giving away something proprietary, but setting themselves up for a battle they can't win. Well, I I think, you know, any significant increase in technology is going to be patentable. There is absolutely no way that I can imagine that, you know, you can, an, an, an instrument company can uh, keep proprietary, you know, any major change in technology because there are enough really good people in R&D in every instrument company to be able to reverse engineer that. And clearly with things like uh, producing chromatography columns, uh, some of that proprietary technology either becomes very hard to get a handle on or, or disappears during the manufacture. So I don't see that there's really much of a risk of giving anything away as far as you know paper specifications that that certainly is a possibility but paper specifications are are not what sells instruments it's performance on real world samples at least for me sure i I understand so the feedback i've gotten from perhaps salespeople or whatever is that if we publish those specifications and they don't match because uh, if you put two instruments together there will be places where either of them win against the other and if you don't know which one the potential buyer cares about 
they can eliminate you right off the bat um, based on a paper specification when had they gone further in the process, you might have been able to win that deal. Yeah, and, and from, from the salesman's perspective, I can understand that. Uh, I, and I think that goes back to my basic premise, which is you have to test an instrument with your samples and your application because industry standard benchmarks are just a starting point. Okay. I guess maybe we... Um and maybe we've already covered it, but what information in marketing content is most helpful for you to make a decision? First and foremost, well, since since we were just talking about performance benchmarks, that's a starting point. So it's it's good to have the performance versus the benchmarks. And as I said, and as you recognize that uh, showing the chromatogram as opposed to just the signal to noise ratio. Uh, is is a step in the right direction. Uh, science and with associated with new technologies help me to understand. I'm not a physicist. I'm not an engineer, but I am reasonably intelligent. I have a reasonable technical background. If you can explain the science to me and how it will make my life better then you have an advocate if you present the technology and you can't explain it or if you exaggerate it and it doesn't make sense to me then you've got an enemy of course yeah Uh, yeah I'd, i'd love to see data about repair history and uptime uh if the instrument isn't robust it doesn't matter how well it performs when it's running it's running that is important particularly if you put that in the context of the uh, the emergency response network um, and how many instruments are in the field you know I don't want to buy serial number zero 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 one and when I was at Johnson and Johnson we were actually offered the opportunity to buy the first commercially available instrument from one vendor. So I don't want to buy 0001, and in the network perspective, I certainly didn't want to buy serial number 0001 through 0050. Exactly. Uh, But at the same time, I don't want to buy an instrument that will reach its end-of-service life in seven years. I want to be able to depreciate that half-million-dollar purchase over as many years as possible. And then I think the last thing are the data systems. Uh, Everybody makes the same claim about intuitive interfaces. And some of them are, I'm sure, intuitive to some people and others are intuitive to others, that's got to be a matter of sitting down and seeing whether or not it works with your brain. But the thing that I want to know are the computer requirements and all two times the configurations that are being cited are minimal configurations. I want to know the real world. Uh, You know, in, in today's world, 
that the difference between a minimum configuration and a data system that will do everything you want is only a thousand bucks and on a five hundred thousand dollar purchase that that becomes trivial uh, I want to know about the ability to connect to a network uh, in some environments you can in some environments you can't uh, just from a security perspective I need to know about software updates and upgrades and I, I know that you know, a lot of this is projecting into the future, the unknown, but roughly what the frequency is, what the costs are, and then again, whether or not the instrument needs to be connected to the Internet to perform those upgrades or updates. Interesting. Um, you have somewhat jumped ahead to my next question, which is great, but the the next one would be to talk about aspects of a purchase outside the instrument. So you have covered uh, not necessarily service and support, but certainly robustness and uptime and software, but what other aspects of a purchase are important for you, and I guess can you give them some relative weight around consumables, training, and so on? Yeah, uh, relative weight will be a bit of a challenge. Uh, and I think it's very different depending upon y- your stage of development or your laboratory stage of development. Repair service is, is, is critical. As I said, it, it, defined, it defines your uptime, and we recognize that all instruments are going to break. And sometimes it's a function of the design of the instrument, and sometimes it's a function of the design of the operator. Um, But what's important to me is a rapid response and a fix-it-the-first-time solution. Again, with the emergency response network, uh, emergency service was of supreme importance, and all of our vendors, when we were running uh, emergency response exercises, uh, they were willing to provide us with 24-7 support, which was a great benefit. Uh, and f- for that reason, we steered away from third-party support because we found that access to parts was not the same as the actual vendor. And that they would make a best effort, and if they couldn't fix it, then you'd have to wait for the vendor to get involved, and that was not timely. For me, I find the key to good service is dependent largely upon the quality of the individual service engineers. Mm -hmm. So if you know who will be the person with primary responsibility for your account and you know that person is good, that's, that's a great advertisement. Uh, if they're not that good, that can actually steer you into a comparable instrument with better, better service. That's helpful. So uh, yeah. I, I, I really like that one. Um, Moving on to things like technical support, um, I think it's important when you're new to the technology or new to an instrument platform. Uh, for me, B 
being a bit of a dinosaur, especially when it's software-related. Um, let's face it, factory-produced manuals are of little use, and that's almost by a necessity. When you look at the complexity of instruments and software, the manuals would be a 1,000 pages long, and then with the updating of the software, they'd have to update the manuals you know, twice a year. How can you keep up with that? For me, it's much easier to have the vendor's technical experts digest the changes and then regurgitate the changes to me with respect to my application when I hit a, a road bump. Okay. If that requires having a service contract, that, that's absolutely fine with me. If it's an add-on to the service contract, that's absolutely fine with me because it allows me to get the answer quicker. Uh, consumables, uh, I, I think that's very dependent upon the instrument. So for things like instrument-specific consumables, like inlet liners, um, if you are not a major player, then having the consumables available that are certified for use in the instrument, I think, is a significant benefit. If you're, you're looking at an Agilent GC, for example, there have got to be a dozen aftermarket vendors selling instrument-specific consumables. So in that situation, I don't, I don't see it as being uh, particularly critical. Okay. And perhaps the last thing is training. Since I've been involved in training for over 25 years now, this is something that's very near and dear to me. In my experience, instructor-led training at the vendor site is the most effective. It puts me on someone else's instrument, which means I'm not taking something away from my laboratory's performance. It gets me away from the nagging demands of the job, or at least it moves those demands to different hours and after the class. And ideally, the instructor is an expert not only with the hardware and the software, but with the technique. And that gives me someone to discuss the application of that instrument and that software with respect to my laboratory's needs. Now, I say instructor-led training is, is the way to go. But the problem, just as with the factory manuals, is there's such a level of complexity that the orientation is packing too much information into too little time. And from my experience, this is... This is counterproductive. And ultimately, the student has to be able to go home and do their specific job to justify the expense. And it's hard for them to grab the information that they need when they're overloaded with information, which might not be particularly relevant to what they're doing. Now, this could translate into needing more than a single course to become an expert in instrument operation, and that's usually cost prohibitive, and I, and I recognize that. 
but personally, I just think the the hardware and software is is too complicated for sound bite training. Running a mass spectrometer properly is is very different from operating a copy machine. Yeah, I get it. So, no opportunity to um, put some of that training in a digital form and then follow up with in person training, or um, I'm just asking for uh, uh, alternative possible solutions. One of the things that when we started the um, the LRN, we had training for 46 laboratories, I think. And we started out doing hands-on instructor-led training. And it was incredibly effective at bringing up people up to speed quickly and producing high-quality results. And we knew that they were producing high-quality results because we were also running a proficiency testing program. So there was no way to hide if you weren't producing. Um, then reality started to move in, and travel budgets got harder and harder to deal with. And we started to do um, computer-based training and basically sending out a a CD with training materials on it, which included lectures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This was pretty effective as long as people already knew the technology. So if, if it was simply a matter of putting in different instrument set points, then the computer-based training worked like a charm. But people objected to it because they it lacked the human contact and the ability to ask questions. Sure. So what we were using toward the end of my tenure was to do a web-based training where in the morning the instructor would provide lecture materials and in the afternoon the students would have laboratory experiments to do and they would be in their laboratory they would run their instrument they would produce their results and the results would be the starting point of the next day's lectures and we found that very effective in terms of the technology transfer and in terms of giving the student the opportunity to ask questions and to go beyond the material that one instructor might put into a, a simple uh, self-paced training. Nice. I think that will be helpful to a lot of people, too, as, a, as an idea of how to get around. Because I, I understand travel budgets and all that. Is, uh, it's a challenge, I'm sure, for every industry. Um, and so you mentioned the human side. So the, uh, one of the last questions here is we talked a little bit about sometimes there's a person in the factory that, that has good information for you. And I don't know if I have a, a perfect question here, um, except how can uh, companies take advantage of those subject matter experts? And actually, this was sort of the... Um, impetus for the post that got this whole conversation started in LinkedIn is that there are subject matter experts who are not in marketing. They might not be product marketing. Often engineers R&D who can do the kind of explaining about the technology 
that you were asking for. And in my post, I was suggesting there are many ways to get information out of them without asking them to write something, for example, which when people want to write something, it puts a large burden on them because they want to make it perfect. But that same person might be very good at just um, talking into an iPhone or doing a, a short video to explain a technology. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, I, I love uh, talking to R&D people. Uh, unfortunately, you know, they are usually uh, the people that no one outside the company is allowed to talk to um, because they have an enthusiasm for the, for the product, for the, the technology that they've developed, um, and it's really evident. Sort of on the negative side, though, is uh, they tell more truth than anyone else. And so, um, you know, just letting them talk might not be the wet best way, uh, keeping them sort of to a script that's pre-approved might be better. But they, they are the people with the best answers. Well, I think I, that, yeah, go ahead. I, I think the, the factory applications people can be a good substitute for R&D if they spend enough time talking to the folks in R&D and they have enough experience with the hardware and software. And they usually have a better ability to relate the technology to the real world outside the factory. So some combination there might be a be an opportunity. What about a recorded interview between an application specialist and an R&D person where the application specialist who has been in the field talking to customers and knows the questions and really the what I'm trying to get at here is a way maybe to save time for people in R&D um, to not be on the phone with customers answering questions but to get this out in what would be sort of a visual FAQ and at the same time, create some affinity between a customer and a company because they have this person that they're sharing the, the technical expertise with. I, I think that would be a really good thing to do within the context of a particular application area. So if there was a technology that was developed uh, to be able to have somebody who has some visibility and, and credibility in, for example, uh, clinical analysis, uh, discuss with the factory expert how the new technology can be applied to the clinical analysis, and that makes it useful not only to somebody like me who wants to learn about the technology, but to somebody who's less concerned with the science and more concerned with uh, publishing a result. So okay. it, it gives, it gives a, a broader spectrum of appeal than just somebody talking about an application or somebody just talking about the science. Sure. Very good. So my last question, it's not science-related at all. Just tell me a little bit about what you like to do when you're not working. I realize now you're retired. You, you might be doing other other things, but even when you were working, what did you do outside the lab? Well, 
believe it or not, at 66 age, years of age and living in Atlanta, Georgia, I'm playing ice hockey about 35 times a year in an adult recreational league. Wow. Yeah. While the league might not be NHL quality, and that's if you can imagine the NHL as a co-ed, non-checking league, <laughs> uh, the camaraderie before, during, and after the game is, is absolutely world-class. Nice. <laughs> Most of the year in Atlanta, I like to get out and play golf. Um, over 50 years trying to figure out that game. But it is one sport where the scenery is beautiful and justifies going out even if you're having a bad day. Exactly. That was the answer I expected. And honestly, I've thought of um, – I've tried to get discussions going on some social media with scientists about their hobbies because you're always surprised. I, I used to work for a guy who was um, – that I knew pretty well. We worked together, well, he was my boss for a few years. And then I found out long afterwards that he builds um, model ships. And I had no idea. And um, scientists and others have so many interesting hobbies that you just wouldn't recognize. I commend you for the ability even just to stand up on skates because I'm still struggle with that. Yeah, there are some days I don't do it very well. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you taking the time to give me um, all these answers and ideas, and I, I'm sure that a lot of what you said here today will be really helpful for my audience, Marcom people across the industry, and uh, again, thank you very much. It's my pleasure, Chris. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life Science Marketing Radio. If you enjoyed it, a rating or review on iTunes is always much appreciated. Or you can leave a comment on the podcast at words, the number two, wow.com. Have a great week, everybody.